Let's pray together. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, I ask for your help now so that I would be faithful to your word and that you would grant the clarity and the humility and the wisdom for me and then uh, an openness and receptivity to what you have to say. And if, if anything I have prepared is unhelpful, cancel it out, make me forget it. And if there is more to say than I have thought, I might say, bring it to my mind, I pray, for the good of these brothers. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a question and then we'll circle back around to the answer in a few minutes. The question is this, why would you want to be forgiven by God for your sins? Why? There is more than one right answer to that question, why you would want to be forgiven, but there is only one answer that makes all the other right answers right. So be thinking about that now for the next minute or two while I set the stage for where'd that come from. The gospel, uh, as it's defined in 1 Corinthians 15, I, I presented to you, I gave to you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised again according to the scriptures. That's what Paul calls of first importance and he calls it the gospel. That work of God in Christ purchases, obtains for us spectacular benefits. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, those benefits become yours. We've been hearing about some of those. Let me list off some of those. One of the greatest benefits Tim talked about last night, namely justification, the gift of righteousness, a medal hung around your neck of the achievements of Christ's honor so that when God sees you, he sees Christ. That was obtained for us when Christ died and rose again. When we believe we're united with him and the medal is hung around our neck and God himself salutes the medal. Astonishing benefit of the cross. Or another would be propitiation. So justification, propitiation from Romans 3.25 where Christ is put forward as a sacrifice because God had passed over former sins. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. He doesn't sweep sins under the rug. He punishes sin. And it happened in Christ so that his wrath is removed and all I get is the smile of his acceptance though I don't deserve it. Propitiation is a spectacular benefit of the cross of 
Christ. And another one would be redemption. A ransom is paid. And the ransom was of infinite value. And now I was a slave and now I have been bought and I'm free. That was purchased at the cross. So justification and propitiation and redemption or ransom paying or rescue. I was doomed to spend eternity in everlasting suffering, wrath and hell and condemnation. And now I have been saved, rescued, and I don't have to go to hell anymore. That was purchased and obtained for me at the cross of Jesus Christ. Or eternal life. I will now forever live and very soon for me, probably it will be pain-free and sin-free forever. That was obtained at the cross for me. And forgiveness of sins. All my sins, past, present, future, paid for, forgiven as I trust in Jesus. Spectacular benefits obtained at the cost of the life of the Son of God and none of them is the ultimate reason for which he died. All of them that I just named are means, they're means to the end for which he died. It is Idolatry to make a means an end. So my message is about the end, the ultimate end for which he paid his life. It is not justification. It is not propitiation. It is not redemption. It is not rescue. It is not eternal life. It is not the forgiveness of sins. And those are unspeakably glorious. You can spend an eternity writing hymns. We will sing hymns about all of those forever. And we will not be committing idolatry. If you don't celebrate the means as essential means and blood-bought means, you're not saved. But they are means. They're not the end. So now back to my question. Why do you want to be forgiven? use an analogy now. Suppose I get up in the morning having asked my wife politely to move the laundry basket from its inappropriate place beside the bed onto the chest at the end so we don't stumble over it. And I'm going to have devotions and, and I stumble over the basket which didn't get moved and I turn to her as she's just waking up and I snap an unkind mean-spirited word of criticism to her before she's even awake and and wound her spirit justified because she didn't do what I asked her to do now it's a half an hour later in the in the kitchen and her back is to me there's ice in the air, 
And I, I know what needs to happen here. I need to repent, apologize. It doesn't really matter, men, that she should have moved the basket. That's just totally irrelevant. <laughs> we, we so often justify our mean-spiritedness because she's just not measuring up. And we feel this sense of warrant. To love as Christ loved the church doesn't compute that way, or we'd be in hell this morning. So, there's ice in the air, her back is manifestly pointed toward me, and I know what needs to happen. I need to repent, apologize, and be forgiven. Why do I want to be forgiven? Here's two or three wrong answers. Number one, if she doesn't forgive me, she might not make supper for me tonight. <laughs> Stinking answer. Worse, she'd probably make supper, but no sex tonight. Not going to happen with his ice in the air. Stinking answer. Third wrong answer. I hate a guilty conscience. Going to live with this all day long. I'm going to be miserable today. Lousy answer. It's not right, not wrong to, to want to want supper, sex, clean conscience. Not wrong. Why do you want her to forgive you? It's a real simple answer. Every one of you could give it. You want her back and not the kind she's pointing at you. You want her to turn around and hug you. You want the ice to go away. You want the embrace. You want the woman back. You want your wife. You want it whole. Now I'm asking you, why do you want to be forgiven by God? Get out of hell? Not wrong not to want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Have a clear conscience? Christians have better marriages, maybe. Have a medal hung around your neck and God favor you. Those are not the end of forgiveness. I'll read you the end of forgiveness from 1 Peter 3.18. Well, I'll say it. Christ suffered once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And when you get there, Christ died so that you would glorify him by enjoying him forever. 
And I changed the catechism from what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I changed it to by. The chief end of man, the chief end of why Christ died is that we would glorify God by enjoying him forever. Christ died to purchase your everlasting happiness in God because your happiness in God magnifies God. If you are not supremely happy in God, above all other things, you are not glorifying God. You glorify what you find most pleasure in. And for that he died so that Christ would be magnified by your being satisfied supremely in him at the cost of your life. Let me give you the text now where I get that idea. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. And the idea I'm talking about is that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And that Christ died for that glory through that satisfaction. That's what he died for ultimately. Nothing beyond it. That's not a means to anything. When you get there, you're home. That's it. No more means to anything beyond your supreme satisfaction in him to his glory. That's the end. Everything else means. Here's the text. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It is my eager expectation and hope that now as always, Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now there's a logic there that if you don't think about, you will miss one of the most glorious truths in that text. And it's in the word for. So Paul's supreme passion, I hope it's yours, supreme passion in life is I want Christ to look great on my life and on my death. My desire is that Christ will be magnified in my life, whether by life or by death, for, put it in your thinking cap, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How does that logic work? What does that word for mean in verse 21 of Philippians 1? Split the death, the death pair and the life pair out. Life and death, live and die. And just say the death pair. See if that sounds like the logic is working. My passion is that Christ would be magnified in my death my body through death for to me to die is gain. Starting to get clear? How is Christ magnified in my body by my dying? For to me to die is gain. So, He's magnified when in my dying and I lose everything in my dying on this planet and all I get is Jesus. 
and I call it gain, who looks great at that moment? Christ looks great. My passion is that Christ would be magnified in my death, for to me to die is gain, which I paraphrase, Christ is most magnified in my dying when in my dying I am most satisfied in Christ. Or life. That's where I get that idea from the Bible. Now here's the incredible implication of, I'm just trying to figure out how this clock is working. It's going down. Okay. Thank you. 13 minutes. That's not good. <laughs> so stop wasting it. The implication of that is if God is most glorified in you, when you are most satisfied in him, and if Christ paid the price of his infinite blood, for that glory through that satisfaction, your vocation for the rest of your life on this planet 24-7 is to maximize your pleasure in God. Period. No qualifications. In God. In God. In God. It changes everything. Next year, money, sex, and power, they're dead. In God, I find my supreme satisfaction. Now, all I want to do for these 13 minutes now is go to the Bible and push on you until you see this. Because I've got eight reasons in 13 minutes. See if we can do this. Eight reasons that the Bible makes crystal clear that you must now, if you are on, on beam with me, you must Walk out of here saying, my vocation is now to do the hardest thing that ever could be done. Namely, stop enjoying everything else supremely and enjoy God supremely only. I said it the way I meant it. Take my words seriously. I think about them. Don't say I say things I don't say. I don't like people like that. Number one, you are commanded to seek and pursue your pleasure in God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. You, you don't have any option. It's gladness that's commanded. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4, 4. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. It is a command, brothers. It's not icing on the cake of Christianity. It's the cake by which we glorify God. Delight yourself in the Lord. You will, Tim will, I'm sure, say it. You will become like and glorify what you find most pleasure in. And if it's not God, it's an idol. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. Beholding, enjoying, treasuring, being shaped. 
Second argument. So first argument, you are commanded in the Bible to seek your joy in God. Number two, we are threatened terrible things if we will not be happy in God. Threatened. God threatens us if we will not be happy in him. Deuteronomy 28, 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies. Jeremy Taylor once said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. And that's true. It's not a rhetorical flourish which makes us serious, massively serious about happiness. You go to hell if you are not happy in God, supremely. Number three, the nature of faith teaches the pursuit of satisfaction in God. The nature of faith, one verse. I've got three or four here, but we'll just one. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. These are parallel, right? He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. How do parallels like that work? Come, not hunger. Believe, not thirst. They are mutually illuminating, aren't they? So coming not to hunger, believing not to thirst. It's not like there's two different courses of the meal out here and belief gets one and coming gets the other. Coming and believing are the same here and what you get at the end is soul satisfaction. Bread and water for your soul. If you come, if you believe, therefore my definition of believe is coming to Jesus for the satisfaction of your soul. So I am asking, why do you want to be forgiven? Are you coming to Jesus for the total satisfaction of your soul? Knowing you made for this. You were made to see and savor Christ. So you come for satisfaction. So the very nature of faith. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him who believed in his name. He gave the power to become the children of God. So what is believing? It is receiving. Receiving as what? Boredom? No, we receive Jesus as treasure. He's our treasure. So the nature of faith shows us we should be pursuing our joy in him all the time. Number four, the nature of evil teaches us to pursue satisfaction in God. What is evil? What would be your definition of evil? Here's Jeremiah's definition of evil from chapter 2, verse 13. Be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly desolate, for my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
What is evil? Evil is putting your lips to God as the fountain of life and saying, yuck. And putting your lips to the dirt of the earth and saying, it's got to be here. It's got to be here. It's got to be here. That's evil. And all other evils come from that evil. So the very nature of evil says, go to the fountain, drink from the fountain, drink, drink, drink until you're so satisfied you know it can't be found anywhere else. Number five, the nature of conversion and discipleship teaches the pursuit of satisfaction in God. The shortest parable, one little parable, Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again and from joy over it goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. How many years did I read that without noticing the phrase from joy? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found buried again and from joy sells everything he has to buy that field. King Jesus is found one day in a field and we will have him at any cost, right? We will sell everything, wedding ring, grandfather's clock, computer, books, house, we will sell it all with joy. <laughs> what a life. You talk about freedom. You talk about total satisfaction. You're losing everything, man. Don't you know this Christianity thing is crazy? People will call you hateful. They're going to come for you someday. Make my day. For joy, for joy, he sold everything to have that gold and silver and precious stone called King Jesus. Argument number six is implicit in number five. The call for self-denial is a call to pursue your joy in God. This is the biggest objection I usually get. You, you're teaching, you go around saying, everybody pursue their joy in God all the time. That is, that's not self-denial. You're just contradicting Mark 8, 34. To which I say, read the next verse. So here's Mark 8, 34 and 35. If everyone wishes, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Got that? If anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, instrument of, of execution and death to self, and follow me. Next verse. For, argument, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Paraphrase. If you are not willing to lose your life to gain Christ, then you will gain life and lose Christ. Of course we must lose our lives to gain our lives. Christ is our life. Of course we must sell everything. Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you renounce all that you have. Luke 14, 33. You cannot be my disciple unless you renounce all that you have until I am your supreme pleasure that outstrips all other things so that if you lost them all totally you would say gain you cannot be my disciple argument number seven we're almost going to make it the nature of pastoral ministry implies that all of your people should be pursuing joy in God because 2 Corinthians 1.24 says, this is now Paul, a representative Christian leader talking, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. What a great banner to hang over the pulpit. I work for my people's joy. That's what I live for. Why? Because when they are most satisfied in him, he is most glorified in them. And that's why the world was made and why the Savior died. He said, if you go a few verses farther in Philippians 1, where I started, what I shall choose, to go and be with Jesus or to remain, I don't know. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Therefore, I am sure that I will remain and continue with you all for your advancement and joy in the faith. Awesome. The Apostle Paul said, I'm staying on the planet for your joy in God. Because that's why he died. And that's why I live. Number, number eight is tomorrow morning's message. I skip it. Namely, you can't love people unless you do this. You cannot love people unless you pursue your joy 24-7 in God, which sounds exactly the opposite of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love seeks not its own. So I hope, I hope you'll be here. I close with this one. And it's, it's where, where I began, but I'll close with an illustration of it. So this is a, an illustration of Philippians 1, 21 and 20. You can't glorify God unless you pursue joy in God above all things. The day that you're persuaded by Immanuel Kant or some Stoic or some other kind of skewed theology that you should stop for goodness sakes pursuing your joy in God and seek something else more is the day you say farewell to a life that glorifies God. Closing illustration. I'll be married 47 years in December and uh, suppose I ring my own doorbell 
on my anniversary as I get home, which I never do, it's my house, right? I just walk in and kiss my wife. This time I ring the doorbell because I've got behind my back here a big bouquet of purple roses. My wife loves purple. Purple roses are unusual. I made an extra effort. So ring the doorbell. She comes to the door, looks quizzical. Hi. <laughs> Why'd you ring the doorbell? Hi, Noel. Happy anniversary. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And suppose I said, it's my duty. <laughs> I read the book. I said, how you husbands buy roses. I have told that story a hundred times in every country and every state I've been in for 30 years. Everybody laughs at duty. It's profound that you would laugh. So profound. Do you know why you laughed? Do you know why you laughed? What's wrong with duty? We got cadets here. Duty is a good thing. To throw your life on a grenade out of total allegiance to your brother is a good thing and you're laughing at it. No, you're not. I know why you laughed. You should have laughed. If you didn't laugh, you'd be sick. You'd be bad husbands <laughs> and soldiers. Here's why you should laugh. Yeah, duty is a good thing. At that moment, that's not what magnifies your wife's worth. She does not feel honored by he's performing his marital duty in buying me flowers. That gives her no sense of being valued. So that's a rerun the tape. Ding dong. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? I couldn't help myself. Nothing makes me happier than buying things for you. In fact, I've made some arrangements for tonight. Why don't you go get changed and put on something nice? Because we're going out because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend tonight with you. Now, not in a million years would she respond to that by saying, I can't believe how selfish you are. Nothing makes you happier than to spend the night with me. You, you, you. Nothing makes you happier. And you laugh again. Your, your laughter is my message. It's all it is. Your laughter is my message. I am seeking my happiness in her, in her. I want to be with you tonight. And she doesn't feel selfish. She feels glorified, honored, treasured, valued, wanted. So what is Sunday morning about in church? Ding dong. Heaven opens. 
Hello, church, why are you here? It's my duty. Christians go to church on Sunday morning. That door is shut. The right answer is, I want you. Nothing would make me happier on this Lord's Day morning than to meet you and be with you and treasure you and value you. You are my treasure. Big smile, come here. That's the right answer. So, Father, I pray that these brothers would experience the miracle. Because it's a miracle. We cannot make this happen. Experience the miracle of a new heart that treasures, values, delights in, is satisfied by you above all things. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.